Today we'll spend time with three gentlemen who are joining me already here on stage uh, for their newest book, The Diamond Miracle on the Boulevard, which is available for sale and for signature today. So I hope you'll join us in, in purchasing that. And I'll start off by introducing these gentlemen and then I'll join them for some questions. Uh, but we'll be sure to leave plenty of time at the end for you all to jump in with your questions as well. We have with us Randy Holman, uh, fourth generation newspaperman. I was a reporter and editor for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and prior to that, he was with the Richmond News Leader before his retirement in 2016 from the collective. His four-decade-plus tenure at the two daily newspapers included 15 years as a sports writer. He's a lifelong Cincinnati Reds fan, which I will not hold against you <laughs> since you just shared your deep passion. Uh, but his, his own baseball career included an epic little league game in which he had three straight hits, including a triple, I hear. But with the potential tying run at second, he took a third strike for the final out of the game, which I think still hangs with him as a dark cloud. <laughs> a very tough blow for an aspiring little leaguer. Phil Stanton was employed by the Richmond Braves from 1986 until 88, and he's worked in athletic communications for Randolph-Macon College, the University of Richmond, and Virginia Commonwealth University. He's, this is remarkable, he's also a longtime Cincinnati Reds fan. <laughs> and learned at an early age that he would uh, be better keeping stats than he would be creating them on the field. That's, that's wise, wise foresight there. He's also a co-founder and editor of collegebaseballinsider.com. Uh, Bobby Ucrop. Uh, the finalist of our, our panel here is a second-generation grocer and chairman and CEO, uh, food manufacturer, Ucrops Homestyle Foods. Uh, really needs no introduction here in Richmond. He's lived here his whole life, and his love of family, sports, and community building has led him to join with other Richmonders with passion to take on this special project to enhance the quality of life in the region. I will join these gentlemen now, and we'll get started. And I'll begin right at the, the beginning of your book. This is really a, a wonderful piece. And I, I have to say from the outset that you've found a great balance of, of timeless imagery of the history leading up to uh, the diamond, but then throughout its, uh, its to present day. Uh, so plenty of flying squirrels in this book to be found. Uh, in the beginning of this book, in, in right in the first page, you state that Born out of crisis, the community-wide effort to build the region's sparkling jewel, the diamond, showed what could happen with regional cooperation, a public-private partnership, and grassroots support of the citizenry. Uh, conceived in late spring of 1983, as was I, agreed upon... <laughs> scary. <laughs> agreed upon in the spring of 1984, designed the summer and, and the summer and constructed by the end of the season, the, the very next season, less than eight months, which is quite remarkable. The diamond opened in April 17, uh, 1985. It was a miracle, you say. So why don't we start right there? Uh, Bobby, I'll start with you. Uh, drawing from the title, Miracle on the Boulevard, add some more flavor to this. Tell us more about your thoughts of why this project was such a miracle and how it was pulled off in such a way. Okay. Well, thank you for asking, um, and thank all of you for coming. I look out there, there are a lot of people out in this audience that, that, was involved, that were involved in this project in one way or the other. In fact, if you'd raise your hand, if somehow you were connected at all with the Braves back then, 
designing the diamond. And you went to the you went to Parker Field. Anybody go to Parker Field? So that shows you a lot of these people were born before you were even born. So a lot of people had a hand in this, and that's the reason it was a, a success. But first of all, you go back to that time again. You weren't born, but our jurisdictions didn't really work together that great at times. We had just done the airport was just done. That was a, and but that really didn't serve the masses of people. Uh, but that was a real positive thing. Uh, we had President Reagan was re running for re-election. You think back then in 80, he was a president, and you were also thinking about the Olympics coming up in 84. So there was a general mood for things maybe to happen. The airport had just happened, and the three jurisdictions did come together, Henrico, Chesterfield, and Richmond. And that's, that was one thing. The second thing, very quickly and under the radar, the General Assembly in that time frame in early 84 passed legislation to allow the RMA to, to be involved in the ballpark project. And that was critical for financing. Then the private sector agreed to a 50-50 split with the jurisdictions on this project. Again, people were working together. And they hadn't been um, doing that so well. And then the private sector and the grassroots effort of involving thousands and thousands of Richmonders really came together in five months and yielded $4 million to pay the other half of the $8 million project. And then, the most amazing thing, it got built. Um, at the end of uh, August 31st, 1984, and then it opened again in 85, less than eight months. We had a mild winter. Well, you think about all those things, how did all those things happen? And so, and they really, in less than two years since Carlton Moffitt called, when he was president of the chamber, called a meeting of business and community <coughs> leaders to talk about the fact that there's a threat that the Braves might be leaving town. In less than two years, all that happened. So that in itself, we thought that was a miracle. And so the reason this book was written is because in 2003, we at the Stadium Operating Committee had approved um, an $18 million renovation to the diamond. And it had been signed, sealed, and almost delivered when a person in city government met with some people down in Chaco and said, maybe we ought to do something different. So it pulled back. And so for 15 years, we've been, been a lot of talk. And so, I guess as people have come up to me and others and have said, we've got to tell that story. Maybe there's something in that story that can help us as a community um, work our way through some of these projects that, that can really bring us together, not divide us. And so that's really kind of the, the genesis. And we didn't really think about it being a miracle back then. We were just, everybody was hustling, trying to make it happen. But you look back and say, how did that happen? <laughs> and it happened because you pitched in to build a new ballpark. Well, that's wonderful. And I would say that is a fair assessment to be a miracle, to have something move that quickly. Uh, but I'm assuming, in, in looking at the book as well, there was motivating factors that were pushing to the point of crisis that really started the whole process. So tell me what was happening with Parker Field. We had some that have seen the field. Well, What was that change agent? I would that tell you that I've got studies in here <laughs> that 1974, 1975, 1978, and there was another study commissioned um, in 1980, late 1983, called the Zakelli Hunter study. And we talked about that in the book. But what really happened in 83, we had had this young general manager that, um, named Richard Anderson, who had come to Richmond. And he, he was very, um, he was an exciting young man in his late, in his 20s when he was hired here. And um, he liked to make things happen. And so I didn't even know him at the time. But, he somehow had the ear of the sports writers and other people. 
and he, so, but I think the best way to tell that story is that Richard Anderson lit the fire. So Richard is here all the way from Seattle, where he is head of Seafair in Seattle. Come on up, Richard. He was 31 at the time. I was 37. We were clueless. <laughs> good, but, but tell him, it's in the book. It talks about the water in the dugout, and he was the guy that lit the fire. Well, that's way overstated, but thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, um, it isn't. <laughs> I, 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 I do want to say this real, real quick, and I know we'll get a chance to say a couple things, but this is really about uh, Phil and Randy and Bobby and what they've done in putting this book together, and, and uh, I've been clearly on the sidelines. But this is an example of people checking their egos at the door and doing the right thing for something bigger than themselves. It was about, we were in the memory making business. That's all we were doing, running a ballpark. We weren't curing cancer, but it was a place for people to come together and have amazing times to escape the craziness of the day. And probably everybody in this room can say, I remember when, you know, I saw Dale Murphy or I remember when. <laughs> And, you know, I had a chance, uh, in fact, I'm going to ask him if I could just real quick to, to stand up. And, Phil, you, you, you got to do this as well. But uh, Cheryl, Joanne, right there, please stand up a second. Jimmy Mack and MJ, you're back there somewhere, too. Please stand up a second. Is there anybody else that was on, oh, right behind us, anybody else that was on the staff? So what I want to tell you is, like, these four people and 10 or 12 others like them, you know, we, we weren't making any money, and we just showed up, and we cared. And, you know, so I get way too much credit for all of this. It was them and people like uh, Bobby and Dick Hollander and so many others that stood up. And, and so please give them a hand. Thank, thank you for amazing. I had, I had the privilege of getting to take all the credit for the stuff they did. And I know that sounds like, yeah, he's saying that. No, it has the benefit of being true. Like, they, they really did all the work. And if you really talk to him, MJ will tell you the truth. He will tell you, yeah, that's actually true. Uh, so, so um, you know, it really gets down to what do you live your life for? And what inspired me most of all in this whole process was getting a chance to get close to Bobby Ucrop. And he's the first true servant leader I ever knew. I couldn't understand, like, well, why are you doing all this? There's got to be some profit motivation, right? No, it's about, I want to make a difference. I've been put on this earth to do something good, and I want to make a difference in other people's lives, and, you know, things will just work out. So the miracle on the boulevard it's way more than brick and mortar. It's way more than how this money got raised and how amazing it was. It's about a group of people that came together to do something way bigger than themselves, to make a small difference in a community. Bobby didn't even like baseball, truthfully. He, I mean, truth. He told me the first time he, he, we talked, he'd rather watch paint dry. He really said that. And, and yet, he wanted to make a difference in the community. So uh, to, to these five people I had to work with and the eight or so other ones that that uh, couldn't be here today, and, and to, 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 to Phil and Randy and Bobby for putting this book together. Ultimately, what I'd say is, like, I, I got way too much credit for anything that went well, and there were a lot of things that didn't go well that I deserved to, to take some heat for, but I got, got away with, and we were actually talking about some of those earlier. Uh, at the end of the day, what we did was we, in some small way, made a difference in the quality of life in the community, and how you could use that, and how people that, these millennials and, and Gen Zs that are coming behind us can use that is to think about it's not about me, like Bobby taught us. It's about them. It's about doing something bigger than ourselves. And that's, that's really the miracle on the, on the boulevard. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, thank you, and welcome well, to the I'm panel. I'm thrilled to be here. So I'm going to jump to Randy now. Uh, Randy, the name, when I arrived in Richmond, the diamond, no one could explain to me 
the genesis of that. And uh, so going through the book, I know that you devote some time to that. So have you, do you now know the story behind the diamond? Give us a little bit of flavor on that. Well, Jamie, thanks. And thanks for having me here. And thanks for all of you coming. It's, it's a good question. And, and, uh, and the, the answer is, is we know how it happened, but we don't know who gave us the name. And it, and it occurred to me uh, that coming here for, the, for this occasion, maybe that person is in the crowd. Maybe somebody in the room is the person who wrote <laughs> the letter that named the diamond. If you are here, please stand up. <laughs> or if your dad or your mom or your brother or your sister did it, please let us know. Or be it's, bold and just take credit. No one else has well, 30 years. Yeah. But there's one catch. Randy will tell you what the catch yeah. is. We have, we have a little uh, uh, controlling factor on that. The, we didn't reveal, we still have not revealed, and it wasn't revealed at the time, how the, uh, the anonymous writer signed the letter. Uh, it was a little descriptive phrase. And you have to know that <laughs> to take credit. But, it did happen that way. What, what, what happened was Finnegan and Adrian, the, uh, the uh, advertising agency, had taken over the publicity for the, for the ballpark and started, well, what are we going to name it? It's Parker Field. Are we going to name it Parker Field 2? Well, that's not so great. And so they started looking for a name. They made some uh, rules about how it would be named. They didn't want it named for an individual. They wanted it to be memorable and positive and, and simple. And they ruled out, thank goodness, they ruled out a uh, combination of the, uh, the, the locality's names. Like, we, we didn't want Chess Henrich Metropolitan Stadium. <laughs> For one thing, it probably they would have fought over whether, whether it would be that or Henchessrich <laughs> Metropolitan. So we, we didn't, they spared us that. And then they, they formed a committee that, uh, that met and, and looked at the suggestions that were offered. And Bob Dahlstedt, who was uh, within RICO government, uh, was, was there with the group that was reading the letters and sorting through. And, and he's the one who picked up this anonymous, carefully printed letter and, and saw the name The Diamond. And he immediately was struck by it. He, he thought, well, the game is over. This is it. And Richard Anderson said the same thing. As soon as he heard it from Bob in that room, he, he was in awe of it. He said he thought, that's just right. And the, and the momentum built uh, there. And then from that room, it, it went out. And, every, and, and not everybody, but many uh, who were deciding figured that's what we're going to call it. And uh, despite a, uh, one of the local radio stations decided to have some fun and say, oh, that's terrible. Let's, let's get something new. <laughs> We stuck with the diamond. That, that was the name we got, and uh, and I think it's it is a classic uh, name. It's um, there were there were quite a few others. Candlelight. I guess somebody liked the Giants and liked candlesticks, so we'd be Candlelight, and uh, Friendship Park, and, and uh, I can't remember, but there were like several others who were sort of designated as finalists. But it was always once the diamond was there, it was the diamond, and that's what they stuck with. Did, did they give their motivation? Was it more than just the obvious baseball connectivity of the? You got to read the book. It was that sort of gleaming positive 
uh, uh, idea of what a diamond is in, in both senses. It's the baseball diamond and right. it's the diamond, the jewel of the community. Um, there was also, uh, uh, I think there was just the idea of what it would not be uh, had a lot to do with it as well. It was, right. it was they didn't want, they didn't want it to, to try to describe everything about how it was built. Yeah. Right, so I think like sometimes people don't see the forest or the trees and I think sometimes process is really important, but sometimes, and everybody was trying to stick to the process because Finnegan and Agee was giving us their expert advice and in the book it talks about the different names and the process and all this. But when Bob saw it, nobody really, we kind of were reluctant to say, let's jump in and go for it. Let's sit, let the process work. But clearly, it was the front runner, and it was like, that's what we need, and somebody's got to really show us something else to get by. And I think in life sometimes we can process ourselves to death. And at some point, you got to seize the day. It's Carpe Diem. And that's what happened when that, that name came out. Excellent. I, th I think, too, probably the, the number two name in, in, in terms of how many people wanted it was Frank Soden. It would have been Soden Stadium. And Frank was the, the legendary Richmond uh, radio and, and ballpark announcer. And um, he, his, his name is on the press box at, uh, at the park. And he, he was incredibly gracious about it. I mean, I think he knew that many people said, oh, Frank, they should name it for you. But he, he wrote a letter that's also in the book and, and talked about to, to uh, Bobby saying, Oh, thank you for, 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 the, for the name of the press box. It's such an honor. And, and didn't even mention, uh, and oh, by the way, you could have named the Paul Park. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think that, again, is that sort of community-wide feeling about the park. Uh, Frank's a wonderful person, and it's, it's fitting that his name is there, uh, you know, forever with us on the, on the, in the press box. But the ballpark was for all of us, and, and it was our... It was our park, and I right. think that was reflected. Nice. Well, Phil, a question for you now. Um, we've seen this happen time and time again when communities have rallied around a new sports complex or a civic building of some kind. There's a great deal of analysis that goes into the feasibility of such a project. Uh, and, and now it's you know, these massive projects of $600 million to build a ballpark or whatever it is, but uh, uh, on a different scale, but nonetheless important. Tell us about how the local municipalities were able to, to be a part of this and to, to commit to this, and, and what, how did they have an appreciation for what a, an attraction this could be or would be? Well, Bobby had mentioned that the, uh, the government officials did get along pretty well at that point. They had worked together for the, for the airport. Um, there were several people that felt like it should be the city's total responsibility because the ballpark was within the city limits. Uh, Harry Daniel, who was uh, on the uh, Board of Supervisors from Chesterfield County, was also a Little League coach. And so he would often bring his team to Parker Field to games. And he said he would see his neighbors, he would see other Little League coaches from Chesterfield County. So he knew that there were people coming from Chesterfield County uh, to Parker Field. Uh, Bill Leidinger was a member of the Richmond City Council. He had been uh, city manager earlier in the early 70s, but it, uh, in the early 80s he was uh, city councilman. And he felt like that there were people coming from the counties as well. 
And so where now you may have a more scientific procedure for, for trying to figure out the percentages that came, uh, as I'm sure all of you remember, you used to have to have stickers on your car that would indicate whether you were from the city of Richmond or Chesterfield County, uh, Henrico County. And so what, what Bill did with, with some of his cohorts was to go in the parking lot and look at the cars that were at Braves games. And they realized by doing that that there really was a very high percentage coming from Chesterfield County and a very high percentage that were coming from Henrico County as well. So I think that helped um, as, and, and Bill was kind of the driving force to get the two counties to come on board, uh, but they realized how valuable it was for the area, not just for the city of Richmond, for the area. So that helped in terms of, of getting them to cooperate. And, and it turned out that the three jurisdictions ended up splitting that $4 million uh, that each of them paid a third for, to cover what half of the cost would be for the diamond. Excellent. Now, I know we also have another special guest that's with us, Tom Hansen, who was a structural engineer on the project, who, uh, as I'm told, watched it like a hawk. And uh, so I'd like to ask Bobby and Richard both to chime in on this as you'd wish. Uh, talking about the positivity of the teamwork and the collaboration across governments and private and public partnerships, but let's talk a little more about the construction of, of the park. And going up in eight months seems like an amazing feat, not just for the partnership, but for the actual assembly of a structure of that size. So what were the big challenges? And, and tell us a little more about how it all happened. Well, I would say this. The picture you're back in April of uh, 19, the spring of 84, and people have agreed, let's build a new ballpark. Counties are together, private sites say, yeah, let's go do it. Well, you got to do RFPs. You got to design the thing. You got to get somebody to, we didn't have, we had to design, build type situation. And all this is, we, we talk about that Richard and I knew zero about that. Dick Hollander did, he knew right much about it. But the whole idea, it hadn't really created. We need to have people bidding on this thing in June. And we hadn't raised a nickel at the time. And they're saying, yeah, right, y'all gonna get this done. And so, but they went ahead and then very quickly they put together, and is anybody here from Baskerville? Is Dave Sands or Dave Smith here? But they were integrally involved, as was Tom, and then McDivitt and Street was the, the contractor. But they were doing this really, really fast. That's not the way, way that things happen in Richmond so quickly like that. <laughs> and so, but so why they did it, I'm not sure. And then, I, you know, somebody must have been looking for business, you know. Um, so, but that they worked together. So, and so Tom, and I think it's a hundred year structure. Is that right? Years. It's a hundred. So, least, yep. yeah, at least. Um, but anyway, he did watch it like a hawk. And he was, oh, people will cared, as Richard said, people cared about how that got done. But in June, we agreed kind of on a design. At that point, we still hadn't raised a million dollars. And people were saying, why are we doing this if you haven't raised this money? But people bought super boxes. And uh, we have someone here today who worked at Ethel back then, and, and they bought box number, you know, number eight back then. But the, we had a lot of other people. I've got the list here. Um, <laughs> that It's in the book. Um, but, the, but the point is that People would all of a sudden would say, how do we make this work instead of how do we throw a wrench into it? And so, but then once they started tearing it down, the night, the final, is anybody there the final night in 84? I see a hand back in the back. People started tearing up the place. I'll pitch it to Richard because he can tell you about that eight months or seven, eight months, and it was amazing. Yeah, you know, and I'd, I'd also say, piggybacking on what Phil said earlier about the public-private 
partnership. Uh, and I was thinking about Bill Leidinger, uh, who did uh, great things to help get this happen. But the truth of the matter is, and I may have a bit, little, little bit different perspective, uh, the public sector didn't lead this. The reason this got done, and the reason it gets done anywhere, is when the private sector steps up, when citizens like all of you or any of us steps up and wants something for a community, the public sector's job, the elected official's job, is to figure out how to make it happen. Their job's not to get out on that shaky limb and fight for something, because all they're, they're going to do is, is, is isolate one another. So I, I see uh, really the impetus for how the diamond got built was, was uh, a, a Bobby Ucrop stepped up. And he had no skin in the game, and he wanted this to happen, and he was willing to go help raise the money for it. Uh, and there was a lot of energy and dozens and dozens of other people that, that joined that fight. And it became something that was a visionary experience for us to get it built. So as it, as it spun into the construction, um, the reason um, great folks like Tom, like Baskerville and Sons, like McDevitt Street and others stepped up was because they wanted to be a part of this. This was no like throw in, this became a big deal. This became exciting for the community. This ballpark's gonna get built. I wanna be on that. There was, a, there was an intense competition for the design of the ballpark. Baskerville and Son won it. And by the way, I have not been in that ballpark, I'm embarrassed to say, as much as I love this town and I love Richmond. It's the greatest place, truly greatest place I've lived in. I've lived a few places. I haven't been in that ballpark in 30 years. And I went last night and I walked around and I have a lot of things that I won't share now because I want to save time for all the other comments, but it was just so cool to see it. And then I drove out, um, I drove out on the interstate, I drove down 95 from south to north, and architecturally, structurally, to this day, it is still one of the coolest sports venues you will ever see. And I've had a chance to, since who would have known, but I had a chance to lead or be a part of some of the, the, the biggest and best, including PNC Park in Pittsburgh, which is now ranked as the number one ballpark. And, Petco Park and Joe Robbie Stadium and so on, they don't hold a candle, in my view, to the structure of that ballpark. So eight months, how did that happen? Baskerville and Son was passionate. They wanted it to happen. And what we did was we went to the people that were going to use those spaces. If, if we didn't know anything, the one thing we were smart enough to do was we went and we got the media together. Tom Harger-Court and Bill Deacons were the beat writers at that time. And Mill Saps and Jennings Cully were the sports editors. And we went to them with a list of questions and asked them, if, if you were going to build a perfect press box, you live up there, what would you want? And we went to the clubhouse attendant. If you were going to design the perfect clubhouse, what would you want? And we created ownership amongst the people that lived in those areas. We didn't do it perfectly. But what was really cool was when that building opened, everybody that used the specific spaces that they used weren't given something they'd never seen before. Guess what? They felt like they designed it. So there was a positive energy around their space. Yeah, I, I'm the one that figured out how these went. I can hear Harger Court now talking about the press box. And it, was, it, was, it really worked out brilliantly. Uh, so we, we had a lot of things in, in the mild winter and all, and they used uh, some very cutting edge techniques, at least as far as I knew, like tilt and pour, and they were able to do a lot of things on site. And we built around the existing ball field. So uh, when opening day came, for those of you who were there, you have no idea how many things weren't actually finished yet. But to you, it looked really good. And uh, to MJ and Jimmy Mack and Cheryl and Joanne and, and the rest of us, uh, Phil included, we spent the next four or five months trying to make sure you didn't figure out the things we hadn't finished yet. And ultimately, uh, it, it became quite a community jewel. But we almost, we, there was almost a loss, there was a lawsuit before we, the, on August 31st, there was a threat on a, uh, a part of the um, a contractor about whether or not we could even start that. And I, I mentioned that having Dick Hollander 
who was the person who brought the U.S. He was the key person in bringing the U.S. A, a Russian track meet to the Coliseum. You remember that many years ago? He was the guy. He's involved with the Olympic Committee. So he was the guy that was a steady hand over two young guys like Richard, myself, and, and others who didn't know what they were doing. Full-time job. Yeah. And so, but he was, people really trusted. He was an older fellow. How old was he? He's like 50-some? He seemed, they, he, he, seemed to, he seemed really young now. Yeah. But, but I don't know any of his family's here, but he was the guy that was a steady hand. And he would tell the other lawyers no, or he would tell us no. And he kept, it was the RMA, the people that work with the financing, all those people trusted Dick. Um, anyway, so that, that was a real po incredibly positive thing. Plus the mild winter really helped. And by the way, the, the diamond, there's an article in there by Emma Fuller, I don't think she's here today, but talking about the diamond and the architecture, which is really, really nifty that I didn't, had no clue. We were just, we didn't know, Richard and I weren't that cultured to understand that stuff. But the point is that people that were ex experts were all about trying to make this thing work, and it came up with something that was a real work of art. And the eight months, we keep hitting the eight months, but didn't I see somewhere in the book that the occupancy permit came how close? What, give us that quick timeline. It was the occupancy permit it became a matter of a couple of hours. <laughs> uh, it was Time like, to spare. It was like, I, I, I Details. I'm not certain, but I think it was 5.30 that afternoon. <laughs> well, it got done. That's all that matters. Now, we, we've, we talked about the, all the people involved in this partnership to make this project possible, um, but I'm under the impression that the media had a really important role in, in driving some of the community. Um, so. Phil or, or Bobby, you want to jump in and talk about how you describe them as being some unsung heroes of the project? I think just the support that they showed for the project. It wasn't that they were cheerleaders. It wasn't that, um, you know, that ads were taken out to say. Um, now, there, there were uh, with ballpark specials and some of the uh, individual companies that were involved with the fundraising, they would have ads in the paper. But um, as Richard mentioned with, um, the coverage that Bill Deakins and Tom Hardricourt gave, and then some excellent columns from Bill Millsaps and, and Jennings Cully. Um, they, were, they were covering it uh, as an item of news, but you could just feel that they had the support. They wanted this to happen. They wanted it to succeed. Uh, the TV stations, the radio stations were involved as well. I think it was just the whole idea of there being that positive feeling that, you know, the media wanted to be able to see this project succeed. So I think even though that they weren't specifically cheerleaders in, in the process, they were really helpful in, in, you know, letting the private sector know what was going on, keeping them up to date with, with the progress of fundraising. Uh, and then once it got to the point where the, the stadium was being built, uh, the updates on, on how the progress of the, of the building of the diamond was going as well. As a practical matter, we had no money. And so we had to use, we, whatever the time dispatch for the news labor printed, we used that as our materials as they talked about the progress. And Richard mentioned it again about what they, would, they, were, they were all over this thing. Um, once it, they had bought in because he had engaged them in activity. And it, was, and it wasn't just in the sports, the, the editorial group. Uh, it was very similar. But I will tell you that um, 
And I don't know if y'all remember the, the Braves Boosters video that was done by AZ-104. It, um, it was called, to the, it was like, it was to the tune of Ghostbusters. And it was, who are you gonna call? Braves Boosters. And so they did that on their own. And actually, I mentioned that because in a couple weeks, we, we have a website that's going up. It's a diamondbookrva.com. And it's got a whole bunch of videos of, of, of the project, um, like opening night, um, and what, what they did at opening night, the dedication night, the burning of the note night, and like Channel 12 did a history of baseball in Richmond, of the baseball parks. Rick Stost did a really wonderful piece of that. Um, then Ben Hanlon took us through the, the new facility. So there, there are a bunch of, um, of videos on there, including there's one of Braves Boosters, and you gotta watch it because it has a bunch of the politicians um, in, the, in the dugout saying, who are you gonna call? And, and they're singing along. So people started having fun. And I think that's part of the grassroots effort. But the, the newspaper, uh, but both of them were putting kind of scorecards in. They drew a diamond that's in the book. But it shows they were helping keep track. They will let people know that this thing was working. And that's what helped the higher-ups in the companies want to say, you know, we need to do this. It's, we're doing this for our associates. We're doing this for people who like baseball. It's, we're doing it for, a personal, for, for the pride of the community. And it was an Olympic year. There was an election coming up, and Ronald Reagan was talking really positively about things. So it was just the environment. Which, if you were truly just doing a time of the Great Recession, I don't think it would have happened. <laughs> so things were really set up nicely when people said, let's get this done. And you did have, I, I will say this, that right now I believe that if you have, if people have, are passionate, they're relentless, and they take ownership over something, you can get a lot of things done. And as a guy who wrote a book, Wisdom, Warrior, Lunch, Wisdom, um, warrior lunch about uh, Rod Olson and it talks about all the things we can do if you really want to get things done and you want to lead and I think we in our own little ways whether it be in our churches whether it be in our businesses whether it be other community thing if we get in there we're passionate about it and we're relentless for the goal to help others and then we willing to take ownership and you really get fully engaged as opposed to let somebody else do it so. excellent well that actually ties in Randy, is there anything that we should know or you want to add about the general public's involvement in this project? Yeah. Well, and first of all, I'd like to say, I think in the, uh, in its, I think it's a, the introduction, we call it, Phil and I wrote about getting involved. And one of the things we said was, if Bobby Ucroft asks you to do something, pretty good chance you're going to do it. I think that's pretty obvious. You haven't talked to my wife. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> The community, the community involvement, I, to me, it comes down to a change in the pronouns. It became not he's going to do it, not, not, not this wasn't Bobby Ucrop's thing. It wasn't they're going to do it. It wasn't the, the, the rich Braves need, need this. It was we're going to do it. I'm pitching in. It was us. This was going to be our ballpark. And I think... The the you know you started seeing it everywhere. It was on it was on it was in in offers that you, you saw for special ballpark specials for toilet paper. It was it was on grocery bags. Every grocery bag you got from Ucrops was I'm pitching in to build a ballpark, and and it meant that you know five cents of, of your purchase was going toward the ballpark. It's just a little bit, just that little bit. But all of a sudden it became ours. We wanted it. It was going to be something that we would, would enjoy and, and, and it was going to be 
It was going to be our project. It was our project. And I think that was what, what happened and what, what really turned it toward, toward the enthusiasm, as you said, with, that, the, that the company leaders suddenly saw. They, it was like, yeah, we, we're, we are going to be part of this too because we don't want to be left out. This is our thing. So I see back and back, I see Joanne Cole, who's been a lifetime at the retail merchants. But the retail merchants, uh, many retailers were involved with the Lansing Building Products, for example. There were a bunch of People's Drugstore, name of the past, Safeway. There were a lot of independent food stores as well involved. But people were encouraging other people. This is, it's the people's facility. And, but then at, once it was built, like people began u- using it as a gathering place, not just baseball. Y'all may recall when we had the big retail merchant sponsored the Desert Storm Parade. We had a huge parade back there. Uh, back then, so it became it became a, a very special place where we were able to honor those Americans who had given their lives um, and those who had been triumphant as well. And so that brought the community together, and so it's kind of fueled, um, I, I guess, a positive spirit which we like to keep going. Absolutely. Thank you, Joanne. Phil, uh, there's some specifically named areas uh, when the diamond opened. Share a little about that. Randy mentioned about one of them. There, there were just a lot of different names that different suggestions that people had for the new stadium there were a lot of people that wanted to keep the name parker involved with the stadium um, but i think there was a feeling that there there had been so much uh, negativity in terms of parker field that they were still appreciative of what dr parker had done uh, with baseball in the community uh, and in getting Parker Field built. So if you remember when the stadium opened, when you got to the top of the steps on the main concourse, there was a large fountain that was there. That was named Parker Fountain uh, in memory of, of Dr. Parker. Uh, and as Randy had mentioned earlier, there were a lot of people that, that wanted Frank Soden's name on the stadium. So the press box uh, was named for him. And then one of the most beloved players and managers in the history of the Richmond Braves was Tommy Aaron. And there were a lot of people that, that would like to have seen the, the stadium named after him. So the, the clubhouse, the, the home clubhouse, what now the squirrels are in, was named the, the Tommy Aaron Clubhouse. So it was a chance to be able to honor those three gentlemen, uh, not with name on the stadium, but, but as part of uh, areas inside the stadium. Thank you. So now let's, that was we're wrapping up here. How does this magnificent ballpark that was put together through such community spirit now fast forward several decades uh, from going, being a state-of-the-art minor league stadium to being one that needs to be replaced or totally upgraded? How does that happen? I, I think, I think, to me, it's still a great ballpark and a great place to go see a ball game. Really enjoy it. But what's happened is that the expectations uh, of the teams and the, and the, and the vendors and the, and the public who, who go to the games have changed. And I'll go back to when, when I was a kid, we played in a, in, a, in a slightly slanted field. And out over shortstop, there was a, a shed then uh, we had ground rules. If it hit the shed, you caught it. It was an out. But if it bounced off, it was a double. <laughs> you know, you, 
you know, people aren't expecting that when they go to a professional ballpark. Uh, so, and, and, and our, our expectations changed when we found a nice level cow pasture that we could play in. And, you, you know, fast forward to, and, and, and raise the level to professional stadiums. Now, people expect an experience that's different from the experience they had in, in 1985. They, they want uh, very comfortable seats, they want amenities, they want a, an app that will let you order food brought to your seat, they want places to have a picnic, they want a fountain in the outfield, uh, they want, and the, and the players want bigger, better, nicer, more comfortable uh, clubhouses. Uh, at the time, this was like, oh, it's wonderful, the players loved it, they had a better training room, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's not enough. They want more. So the ballpark is still in really good shape, but it's not, it doesn't have all of the amenities that are now expected. Doesn't have the largest Megatron ever seen for broadcasting, right? Yeah. All right, so let's wrap up here on that same note, and I'm going to fl uh, flip ahead here to the end of the book in the section you call Extra Innings, and you say the future of the diamond remains uncertain as this book is being published. Decades have passed, expectations uh, for minor league stadiums have advanced, yet fans continue to enjoy baseball at this stadium. So with the calls, and, and we mentioned earlier about the idea of moving the park to Shaco Bottom or, or wherever else, what lies ahead? What's the next step? How long will we continue as we are? Or what are you hearing? What should we know? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's in the hands of VCU and the city. And I think there will be some cooperation at some point to work that out. But they're looking at that big track of land with the ABC um, warehouse you know, being sold. And so, but my guess is that it'll probably be, if something happens somewhere, which that'll be probably be the place, it could be 2021. Um, by the time that something, something new happens, it may be early based on the timeline, the process, how long it takes. And that's why, that's why we probably wrote this book when we started feeling that way about six years ago about the, the process taking forever. Um, if the thing had been renovated in 2003, we'd now be talking about what do we do next, the next, or the next renovation or a new one. And so, but I think, I think between, my feeling is between VCU um, and the city and the people, the mood, people want, people want to have a ballpark. Uh, the question is how much did the public pay? Who's, we're all, you get in all these kinds of issues that are out there beyond my pay grade. But I think, I think something good is going to happen at some point. But I wouldn't get, you know, I wouldn't make plans yet. But it's going to be <laughs> a number of years before, uh, and the thing will still be holding up, even though it's not perfect by any means. <laughs> I'd like to say that, I went from being very much neutral on, well, just, you know, whatever you want to do, build a park, I don't care. After I worked on this book for a couple of years, it's like the diamond is my little brother. You know, <laughs> I, I, I have a very a new fondness for it. I, it reminded me of all the good ball games I saw and the fun I've had there. And, uh, and if, if we have a new ballpark, uh, then it's got the new ballpark has a very high standard to meet. And I hope we can, we can do that uh, in, in every way, in, in both in, in community involvement and in the ballpark itself. And making it as lasting as this park has been. Indeed. Right, to be able to go on. Yeah, some places have already turned over a couple times since That's we, right. yeah. um, 
But I would add that there, on, if you go to the website in a few weeks, you'll see this. There was a drone out there this past week taking pictures of the place. And it also showed Sportsbacker Stadium. And it showed, you can see Scott's Edition. You know, 20 years ago, who would have thought Scott's Edition would become such a hot place? Um, and so, and you look at the, all the land, you know, we have Redskins Park. There's still a lot of land. There have been plans drawn on several occasions to make that an amateur sports um, facility out there with all that land. Um, the city obviously would like to turn it into more taxes uh, from that property. So there, there are lots of possibilities, but um, with sometimes the less government gets involved, the better chance something works. Like you think about what's happening. I, 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 not a political comment. I was just saying that, but like you look at Scott's edition has come back. People thought that was crazy. And you know, Bill's barbecue has been, some of these things are gonna change. And so, what, but I will say there's a group of people out there who actually have some plans. They think the place can be renovated in a way to make it great and spend a lot less money on it. But I think part of the problem is the location and the fact that Arthur Ashe Center is there, that's been a problem for all these years. And the city doesn't have, the school board, they just don't have the money to do what needs to be done. So that's all those things make these things look somewhat problematic. And, um, but so I hope we're not, you know, five years from now, we're still not talking about something happening five years from now again. All right, well, we'll open up for questions. Please just wait, uh, we'll call on you when the microphone comes around. And while we're coming down with the microphones and you're thinking about your questions, uh, Bobby, why don't you share with us what your intentions are for the proceeds from this book? Oh, yeah. We're not trying to make any money on this book. And we may not make any money on the book, but if, we, if any proceeds from the book, we've, the money's gonna go to the Richmond Flying Squirrels Foundation, that they're charities, I'm Flying Squirrels Charities, for the renovation of Richmond's ballparks. That is the inner city ballparks that are, are not in very good shape. So that's, the squirrels have taken that on as a project. So anything that comes out of this will go directly to that. And we're pleased about that. You could be able to check that on the website either. I don't know if you all even knew that was a charity that they were doing that, but they are. And so we think that's a fitting way to um, take whatever proceeds might come. So don't buy one book, buy three. <laughs> all right, our first question right over here. Um, afternoon, and thank you all for doing this uh, and writing the book. I actually got the book Friday night and uh, read through it, and it's really, really remarkable. Uh, this is really for you, Richard. Um, I have heard the story from Carlton Moffat about you all going down to Atlanta to convince Ted Turner to keep the team here, and I think that that would be something interesting that you could tell the audience. It's a great story. Sure. Uh, you know, and again, this gets back to none of us are as smart as all of us, and it's about the private sector, and it wasn't a political statement from Bobby, but it is for me. Uh, elected officials aren't supposed to be doing these sort of things. It's they're, they're doing the things we want as we elect them. When the ballpark took on uh, a life of its own, uh, there was a group of people, um, I, Lee Putney, I recall, yourself, Bobby, Dick Hollander, uh, and a handful of others and myself, we flew down to Atlanta and um, we met with Ted Turner and we also met with the chamber in Atlanta to talk about the impacts that, that, that it had, uh, the ballparks had for, for their community and all on a few other folks and we went, went and saw a Braves game that night. And the intent was to make it clear to Ted uh, and to Charles Sanders at that time, who was the business manager for the Braves, that uh, this community was really committed to this team, and they were committed to this team because they wanted the quality of life experience for their children and their adults and their memory-making experiences. They didn't want to lose a AAA team. And it was a, it was a really cool and, for me, touching experience, uh, and, and clearly the Braves management and 
Turner ownership was, uh, was compelled by that. But I'll also say at the end of the day, it's a business. And so uh, there was one organization in all of this, and justifiably so, that, that wanted to do the right thing, but they had a profit motive. They needed a, a decent facility, and they needed to generate more money off of it. And uh, uh, yet the Braves, in my opinion, still at that time especially came to the table and, and did the right thing for the community too. And I think a lot of it was based on that interaction. It's a great question. Right here in the front. Uh, this is a little bit like that, maybe for Richard also, but do ballparks like ours or the ones around the country generally break even? Is it a good deal, bad deal, or it depends? Wow, loaded question, but in, in two minutes or less, and a great question. Uh, you know, ultimately, uh, and, and I was listening carefully to the comments about do you build a new ballpark or do you, you know, basically refurbish, and there's arguments for both. Uh, as I said earlier, when I went by the diamond, and I just really want to sprinkle on this a bit. When I went by the diamond last night and looked at it, I go, structurally and visually, that is one of the coolest buildings anywhere in this country today. So for X dollars, somebody could go in. It really needs a renovation. Uh, there's a lot of things about it that could be improved as I walk through, and it's not for anybody missing anything. It's just age. Uh, it's tough for a ballpark on its own uh, to make money. Uh, however, again, back to something, Bobby, you said, when you put it in the hands of the private sector, they tend to make money on it. When you put it in the hands of the public sector, it tends to not make money. So I, I think when it's owned by a, by a private business, it has, because there's a profit motive, they, they, they're not, there's, there's, no, um, there's no side deals going on. You gotta, you gotta make it happen. Okay, I think we have our last question right here. Uh, I have to admit, I'm a native Richmonder, and I have never been to the Diamond. <laughs> However, Tomorrow, I've got a ticket to, to go to the Diamond. There you go. My <laughs> question is, what should I expect besides the ball game? What's, what's, why am I going? I mean, why, why should I return <laughs> and go again? I, wait, I have, I have one question. They have a home game? Are they home? <laughs> what? <laughs> if they're home, there's, there'll be a game. That'll be a good reason to go. <laughs> I've lived here all my life, and I've never been to the damn diamond. That's amazing. <laughs> but I have a ticket tomorrow night, and I'm going to go. I thought they were out of town till Thursday. <laughs> I don't think I'm wrong. What day but is he, it? But he got a good deal on the ticket. Yeah. <laughs> what day are we? It, it is tomorrow. Tom, they are back tomorrow. Tom tomorrow is Thursday. Okay, we'll do one more That's here for, for Tom. It's, I would like for you to consider the fact that the diamond was built in the time that it takes to build a home. I mean, literally, about the same time. For a budget, the general contract budget was $6.7 million. With those two things uh, to consider, the bones are there for a substantial renovation. I'd like to think of what is there now as phase one. And if we could get it funded, Phase two would add many of the amenities that people are looking for. The, the guts of it are there. We could make it very, very nice. That's Tom Hansen, everybody. And I think that's a great note to end on. So let me just finish by thank you all for participating. And for everyone here who was a part of this remarkable project that has shaped the landscape in the community now for decades, 
as a, as a still relatively new Richmonder, uh, but as a uh, Lifelong baseball fan. I'm just thrilled to have such a resource here right in our backyard. So thank you. Well done. And thank you for this wonderful book. I hope you all will buy a coffee. Enjoy the game.